And another myth gone, and another myth gone, and another myth bites the dust. Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we're going to be busting three more myths about capitalism. I am in the perfect mood to smash socialism and over-regulating governments and, and the like. The perfect mood. And here's why, dear listener. Because I spent all today redesigning from the ground up a whole new house other than the one I was about to start building mm, tomorrow. Why? Because the planning department in, my, my, uh, in the jurisdiction that I'm building in decided to go back on what offset they were going to allow me to put my own house on my property on. So this caused numerous problems, so many problems, that I'm actually going to have to design an entirely new house. So I am in the perfect mood to rail against government regulation, and especially against the worst of all, socialism and communism, etc. So, let's get into our myths. We have not one, not two, but three. Myth numero uno. Capitalism is a system, and like any system, we should design it to work for us. Now that sounds all well and good, except for it's not. And for many, many reasons. Literally, no part of that sentence is terribly true, and we'll be ripping all of it apart. And to help us do that um, is Adam Smith. Adam Smith is not a raging anarcho-capitalist, as some people have portrayed him. Um, he's uh, the father of economics, in a way, though it does go back to the Dominicans in Spain, and heck, before that, all the way back to Aristotle, right? Well, probably further. But here's what Adam Smith writes, not in The Wealth of Nations, but in The Theory of Moral Sentiments, his other famous book, though far less famous. He talks about this man of system, right? Here's what's embedded in, in, in this, this myth of ours, that capitalism is a system, and like any system, we should design it to work for, quote-unquote, us. Well, Adam Smith would oppose this idea, and here's what he says. The man of system, on the contrary, is apt to be very wise in his own conceit, and is often so enamored with the supposed beauty of his own ideal plan of government that he cannot suffer the slightest deviation from any part of it. He goes on to establish it completely and in all of its parts without any regard to either the great interests or to the strong prejudices which may oppose it. He seems to imagine that he can arrange the different members of a great society with as much ease as a hand arranges the different pieces upon a chessboard. He does not consider that the pieces upon the chessboard have no other principle of motion besides that which the hand impresses upon them, but that in the great chessboard of human society, every single piece has a principle of motion of its own altogether different from that which the legislature might choose to impress upon it. So those who imagine that capitalism is, quote, just another system, they exist in a world of competing tyrants and can imagine nothing more. They can't see an alternative to top-down planning. They think capitalism is just another form of it, to Bring about another system. Why, why we have all of our ideals. We want to impose a system and force people to abide by it. Well, I'm sure capitalism must be the same. What, what else could there be? We'll find out a lot else. Capitalism 
is not a system in this way. It is not designed in this way. Now, that doesn't mean there is no planning. Of course there is. But in the words of Hayek, the real question is who plans for who? Or in the words of the epic epic rap battle produced by, oh, what's his name? Russ Roberts, who's fantastic, and we totally need on the show. In the words of Russ Roberts in his rap battle of Hayek versus Keynes, which you should all listen to many times, both episodes. We want plans by the many, not by the few. You see, the seed of arrogance that Smith observes in that quote is that of a supposed elite looking down on the petty little peons, just like little pawns on a chessboard, that they can be moved about, that they can exert their plan on you. We don't like this. We agree with Hayek. We want plans by the many, not by the few. We think that every single person made in the image of God with intrinsic dignity, with a principle of motion <laughs> to be able to sustain themselves in existence, provide for their own families, pursue their own employment, care for their neighbor in the way that they deem best according to their unique preferences. That's what we want. We don't want somebody at the top pushing people around according to their plan. Here are a couple ways that this is happening now. I find it unconscionable that the Federal Reserve engineers labor markets. They have this dual mandate. They need um, low, stable inflation. Hmm, good job, guys. And they want to have low unemployment, near what's called the structurally uh, low unemployment rate optimally. Now, there are times when these come into conflict, and there's times when the Federal Reserve says, hmm, I think we need more unemployment. What on earth is that? We are not chess pieces to be moved about. You don't engineer the labor market. I think that is far past what ought to be their mandate. Another example is when the government comes in with taxes and subsidies to favor some sectors and hate on other sectors. Why, we need a green economy. Well, you have your plan for the way that people, people work, that they'll do green jobs. Why? Because you pushed that piece over here. Now do it. Or we're going to get rid of the oil sector, or we're not going to allow gr drilling on certain lands. We're going to overregulate and burden uh, petroleum companies so they can't build or operate refineries. <laughs> and then we're amazed that prices go up. Um, it, it, this is this is the type of chess piece moving that that we think is a terrible idea. We want plans by the many individual ones that knit together cooperatively. We don't want a few people at the top designing, pushing pieces, ignoring the wants, needs, and desires of others. Yes, we want freedom. There are some in the Catholic space who who don't like the idea of, of freedom, that feel like it's a little bit too enlightenment, the idea of freedom. But God didn't think that freedom was too enlightenment. From what I can tell, he baked it into the very beginning of his creation, where people make it a free choice in the Garden of Eden, where the angels made a free choice. One of the most curious things in all of creation is the freedom that our God gave us, freedom even to do ill. Is freedom a good in and of itself? Well, that's a hotly debated question. In a sense, yes. But it's a good in and of itself like a tool is good in and of itself. 
My new tractor is good in and of itself. And, well, don't let me go on that long monologue. But it is good in and of itself. However, if I just push down the planning department with it, well, that, well, well, let's say that's bad. Whereas if I use it for a production end, productive end, well, that is, I suppose, better. So we have things which can be tools, can be used for ill, and yet can also be good in and of themselves. And I think freedom is in that category. God designed it from the beginning that we would have that. Now, something I find very curious is that those who oppose this type of organic creation of this system, not a system in the way that, that is designed from above, but a system that we can call a system uh, after the fact. We watch as things emerge out of rational human action. And then we comment on this free market that has self-assembled. We have people who seem to be opposed to this and only want the top-down control. And yet, these people, often on the left, are environmentalists. What, what, what possible madness could, could have you hold these two unbelievably contradictory notions? If I suggested to even the most raging communist that I think we should, we should tear down the Amazon rainforest and we should monocrop with a bunch of Monsanto corn and everything will be in a row and everything will be dictated, they would tell me that I'm a monster. And maybe I am. But if I tell them that I have a new idea, instead, we're going to go and find humans, a natural creature of the earth, and they have created an extraordinarily complex structure of interrelations, of, of use of resources. They have hopes and dreams all knit together in a free market. Why, I have an idea. Let's bring in the experts. Let's bring in the state. And let's monocrop an economic plan, an industrial plan, over top. Let's plow down what was organically created. Well, apparently they're, they're okay with this. Now, to varying degrees, for sure, the communists, the socialists, somebody who just wants more regulation in general, they might have different degrees to which I can, I can bulldoze the organic and I can monocrop the synthetic. But can't you see the unbelievable tension in this worldview, the love of the natural organic system which arrives through survival, <laughs> arises through survival of the fittest, but a hatred of the free market, which is based on the survival of the fittest. Very, very strange indeed. I bring this connection up because Adam Smith was read by none other than Charles Darwin. In fact, by many accounts, Darwin was actually prompted to bring about his theory of, of evolution because of the thought of Smith, because of the way he laid out the deep interconnection of human persons in this natural process called the market. So if you love nature, if you value the diversity that comes from natural processes and oppose its destruction, then why would you want the destruction of the human environment in the economy, in culture, in a real political society, the action of humans in the polis? But let's break down this, this myth a little bit more. So far, we've been objecting to this concept of system, right? It's a system, we'll just impose a new system. But that's not the only problem with this myth. What does it mean, work for us? 
Because the, the us in this certainly matters. Typically, it turns out the us is the people designing the system. So the politicians who get to impose it are the ones that it ultimately works for. And I find little evidence of anything else. Um, though, granted, the us could be the mob. It could be the 51% demanding that the whole system, quote-unquote, the one that they then impose, works for them. It's extractive. That is dangerous. That is mob rule. So which is it? Is the system working for us, meaning the elite? Or is the system working for us, meaning the mob? Both of these we could give ample examples of. But I think there's there's an alternative to this. And, well, we'll get into that much, much more. But let's, you know, let's drill in a little bit more about this concept of systems which are built top-down, be it socialism or central planning or big redistribution schemes. All of these have the same following misguided incentives. One, they don't have skin in the game. So, when the planning office said, oh, no, you're going to have to move your house over there, not over here. Are they going to harvest any gains from my completing it? No. Would they bear any loss if I lost money? No. Do they have any skin in the game here? Well, I mean, I suppose maybe they would get the tax revenue from the house once it's complete, but it's not them that get it. They get a salary day in, day out, doesn't matter. Um, they are entirely cushioned from the vicissitudes of the market. They are bureaucrats with no skin in the game. And following on that fact, let's just ponder something for a moment. What possibly could be scarier than being managed or regulated by people who incur no cost when they're wrong? That's insane. When I'm wrong, I bear a cost. When a company is wrong, it bears a cost. And even if it doesn't immediately, it could reflect that in the change in their shares or in legal action if they make a big mistake and it can be proven. But what about the bureaucrats? What happens when they make a mistake? What happens when a, a recent giant meta-study came out that said that uh, the, the masks had a 5% benefit? That studied something like 73 different nations. It's the largest meta study in the world at the moment. 5% gain. And even then, there's a, there's a wide range to, to how sure we are of that particular finding. But is anybody bearing the cost for, for the impact on children from that? From all of the other impacts, the shortages in third world countries where hospitals who actually needed them didn't get them? Um, no. No, no, no. They can make mistakes like this. A bureaucrat can make this mistake, and they don't pay any cost when they're wrong. Never. Further, nothing could be worse for human flourishing than handing power to people who benefit from extraction, not production. There's two real parts to any economy. Now the Marxist towards will tell you that the two parts are labor and capital. And they're in a bitter struggle for all eternity. But we read Rerum Navarum and found that that was, well, anything but the case. I would suggest the divide is between those who produce and those who extract. The organism that grows and, 
and produces food and beauty and, and shelter and all these wonderful things. And then the parasite that comes wiggling up from the earth and tries to suck out the marrow from that which is productive. Yes, yes, yes. The extractive class. The last group we would want managing is the extractive class. I mean, that's like putting kudzu in charge of the forest. That's like putting that's like putting leeches in charge of river systems. That's like putting ticks in charge of I don't know, the, the grassy fields. That so the idea that we're going to put those who extract to get all of their money from extraction in charge of production seems I have no words. Okay, moving on to the next part. Let's kind of focus in on one of the arguments. You often hear, well, the free market. I, I mean, there's failures. I mean, there's, there's the pollution. There's unemployment. There's a, there's a variety of problems with capitalism. <laughs> I mean, do I have to go into them? That's not an argument. Not even close. Let me give you a, a, a counterpoint. Um, you could say that that um, uh, marriage has problems, right? There's abuse. There's rampant divorce. There's um, there's lots of loveless marriages. Terrible marriages out there. Everybody knows a case where somebody marries somebody else, and we think, well, that was a terrible idea. Everybody knows that. But wait, I just showed a problem with an institution. I just showed a problem with a quote system. Why, does that mean it should be kicked over to the government? Does that mean there needs to be uh, forced marriages by the government? Hmm, no, no, no. Oh, let's take a lighter touch here. How about, how about regulations on marriage? You, you can't marry this way. You can't marry over this age. You can't marry this, that, the other thing. Um, I don't think we would like that. Now, obviously, we have the most basic ones. There's no child marriage. There's no marrying relatives, of course. But we're talking about the regular course, the ones that, that critics would say, there's lots of divorce. Let's solve this problem. Would we ever hand that over to the government? Would we? Well, of course not. Now, for those who study marriage, they actually study it calling it the marriage market because marches, markets are where we match things together, match people together with different preferences. Now, when you marry, you might like this woman or that man or whatever. Um, but markets match more than just people in marriage. They match people with uh, other people. Uh, when one person wants cheese and the other person's a cheesemaker. It's for matching people. Um, so if this type of, of system, we would never accept that just because there's failure, we should uh, we should have the government come in and regulate it, then why do we think they would do any better of a job when we try to meet other people for other reasons, like buying cheese or getting gasoline for our cars? This is to illustrate that um, just because there could be problems with the, quote, system doesn't mean we need top-down regulation for it. Um, that's, an in, that's completely a non-sequitur. Um, let's, let's zero back in on a point we made earlier in my, my rant. Uh, freedom doesn't happen by accident. We wanted, we want planning for freedom. We want plans by the many, not by the few. So we do need some amount of, uh, government to, uh, lay down the groundwork so that human creativity is not stolen or co-opted. 
so that we can have human flourishing and mutual cooperation. But note, our plan is aimed at making it possible for others to plan. We don't want to replace their plans with ours, right? And I think that could apply to what we were talking about with the marriage market. What the government wants to do is make it possible for people to marry, right? If they have an interest in marriage, that's what it ought to be. But we would never want them to replace their plans for who we marry, uh, or our plans with theirs. So what I'm not arguing for is uh, anarcho-capitalism. But what I am saying is that we do want a serious amount of freedom. Um, And that has more benefits than just freedom in and of itself. It also protects us a lot. And here I'm punting to Nicholas Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile, where he makes the point that when we have these small plans, we have these small successes and failures, we have this organic market environment, well, it purges risk regularly. But when we have regulations and uh, large structures in our economy, well, these things serve to iron out the natural volatility that comes from this regular risk-purging activity. And instead, it doesn't remove that, uh, that uh, risk. It just shifts it to tail events so that when that system breaks, it breaks catastrophically. And that... Um, That's a problem. We don't mind a company going bankrupt. We care about a country going bankrupt. We don't mind it when somebody gets laid off here or there, but we don't like Great Depressions. So when we're talking about a free market, what we're talking about is pushing risk down to low levels so that it can't collect up in huge groups in our country and then take down the entire system. So that's just yet another benefit. If I was to characterize um, the people who are making our our myths so popular, I would say that these planners and socialists, they're like the young earth creationists of the economic world. Um, and, And here's why. They don't believe that a system can be the organized together, just cooperatively, based on the type of, of agents which are there. Um, they, they just don't think it's possible. There has to be order imposed from above. Um, that's it. And uh, it must be according to this top-down plan. But we have the anarcho-capitalists, people who believe that government should have zero role, Um, They would be more like the atheistic evolutionists, if I was to make a comparison. I know I have lots of religious listeners, so I'm making a religious comparison. In here, we think it's just um, absolute free-for-all, utter unguided chance. It's just uh, tooth and claw violence, and whoever pops to the top wins. I reject that, too. Um, Instead, I'd say what we are advocating for is something more like theistic evolution, guided by God's providence. And that's what our founding fathers believed here, if you're in the U.S., that um, God was guiding our nation, and many others have believed that too. Um, Indeed, guiding the markets. I believe that these ideas and innovations ultimately come from uh, God. Um, We believe that it's imbued with intelligibility. Um, 
Why? Because well, we're intelligent actors acting according to reason. So when we all make our rational choices, that makes the market rational. It, it takes all of the understanding of all the people who are engaging in it, and it brings it all together to create things like prices. Um, so it's the market is imbued with a type of intelligibility that comes from us as human agents made in the image of God. It's divide. It's guided by God's providence and for His His reasons. It doesn't mean it always gets better and better. Maybe it gets worse, but it is part of the history um, that God intervenes in. So I would say our view is most like a, a fifth way of Aquinas, theistic evolutionist kind of, kind of way. It's not uh, saying that everything has to be top-down, everything planned, and denying the organic nature of the markets. And it's not saying that uh, everything is, is, should just be absolute wild competition such that whoever arises to the top does. No, we want something kind of in between. We want intelligent regulations, emphasis on intelligent we want skin in the game for people. We don't want the extractive class. We want the productive class to be, um, to be in the driver's seat. All right, well, let's get to our next myth. So just a reminder, what we just covered in my rant after rant was capitalism is a system. And we're saying they're kind of equivocating on system because there's a big difference between that organic, natural uh, interrelation of people and an imposed system. Then we have... Like any system, we should design it. And then we said that design wasn't actually a great idea. It has lots of unintended consequences. And those who de design it don't have skin in the game and have all the other problems with their incentives. And then we zeroed in on the last part of that sentence, to work for us. And we said us typically means the politically powerful and their friends or the mob, neither of which are terribly good. Instead, let's seat that working in the person who works and the outcomes and the results of their labor. All right, myth. Number two, capitalism is just based on greed. No, 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 no. All right. <sighs> the central question in economics is compared to what? Professor uh, Mike Munger is fond of the analogy of capitalism to um, a pig winning the prettiest pig contest. <laughs> so sure, it could be true there is greed in capitalism. Um, but are there alternatives, uh, less greedy? Does greed get stamped out of the human heart when it's grounded to poverty by the boot of communism? Is it exercised from the human soul when socialism punishes the wealthy and the mobs cheer? Does that get rid of greed? Oh, and by the way, we'll refer back to our marriage market example saying, what if someone said, well, marriage, it, this free marriage idea is, is terrible because, well, don't you know, uh, Marriage is based on lust. Well, I, I suppose there's lust involved in, in the free market of people finding spouses, but that doesn't mean that you would fix it if you put it in the hands of the political elite or if you had it, the whims of the mob. Instead, we should seat that in the freedom of the human person, allow them to act rationally. And yes, to defeat the vices that come about as a result of having that freedom, of course. But we're going to point out that just saying there's greed in the system isn't an argument. And then saying that capitalism is greed in it, it ignores the central economic question of compared to what? <sighs> and even if any of that worked, we have more problems with it. First, let me describe. Ready? This is how to get rich quick, kids. 
This is how to become rich in a capitalist system. Here's the question you ask. What do other people want that I could give them? All right. What do other people want that I could give them? Whoever answers that question and follows through the best will be the richest person. Jeff Bezos said, what do other people want? He said, hmm. Well, they want everything. A to Z, right? Amazon A to Z thing. And when do they want it? Well, they, they want it all. They want everything. And they want it delivered to their door like in no time for a really good price. Could I give that to them? Yeah, I think I could. I'll start Amazon and I'll, I'll build out distribution centers and I'll have a, a giant web thing to, to find this stuff and, and I'll, I'll get suppliers. And yeah, I could give that to them. That's why he's so wealthy. He asked that question. What do other people want that I could give them? That's capitalism. What about the alternative? How do you become rich under a government heavily regulated system or socialism and the like? How do you get rich in that system? Well, you ask a inverted question. Here's what you ask. What do other people have that I could take from them? Right? How do you become rich in socialism? That's how. What do other people have? Oh, the rich have money that I could take from them. Oh, we'll tax them. That's an absolute inversion. And let me ask you, tell me which one of those sound like greed to you. Hmm? I think it's pretty obvious. And just to drive home this point, if you peeked into a company boardroom, here's some questions you might overhear. Well, Bill, what are, uh, what are our company's core competencies? Or how about, what's the market looking for right now? How can we deliver more value to the consumers than our competitor? What input costs can be reduced to remain competitive? That's my white guy voice, by the way. Um, if, however, you goose-stepped into a labor rally, a union meeting, or a socialist party gathering, you would hear things like, so how are we being oppressed? Who's taking advantage of us? Um, how do we get more out of management, out of government? Uh, how do we drive up our wages, get more, get more benefits, get more of this? Should we strike? Um, how do we get more from the rich? Why aren't they paying their fair share? Um, how do we get the programs to cover health care, uh, to cover sick leave, to cover this, to spend for this, to spend for that, to pay us for all these things? How do we get that? Which one sounds more greedy, guys? <laughs> Come on. <sighs> There's a priest, uh, Father Rippinger. Um, somebody who does not have my full endorsement, but does say some good things every now and again. He points out, uh, he's an exorcist for those who aren't familiar, that demons will always accuse you of the sin that they themselves commit. They would love nothing more than to convince you that up is down and right is wrong. That people working to serve their neighbor before they themselves are served are the greedy ones. And those conspiring to take from others by the force of the state, oh, those are the sweet little selfless ones. I think that this is just nakedly ridiculous, this myth. Have we busted it enough? No, never. Let's keep going. Maybe you think that, um, that if greed went away, well, that would be somehow um, deleterious to the capitalist, quote, system. Well, let's describe it. I wave my magic wand, and all the greed in the human hearts goes away. 
I would say the first change would be we would see a marked decrease in consumption spending. But that doesn't go nowhere. That would mean that we would have a corresponding increase in savings, which equals investment, investment directly, and in charity. Uh, Great. I think we'd see a lot of changes in advertising. It'd be less about keeping up with the Joneses or portraying this awesome image. And it would probably focus more on the real use case for things or for saving money or or for um, it as an investment vehicle, etc. Do you think without greed, people would still work hard? Sure, of course they could. A lot of people work because they love their jobs. A lot of people work because working hard is a virtue. You do know that before any sin was there, uh, Adam and Eve worked in the garden. So working, working hard, being productive, that doesn't have to be motivated by greed. You can do that without greed. We have, there you go, right in scripture, an example. So you could still work hard. Uh, We could still expand to new markets. That's not greedy. That's a wonderful thing. Um, I mean, when trade arrives, uh, it gives the opportunity for people to exchange things of low value for things they believe is comparatively higher value. Trades only happen in a free market when both parties believe it to be in their best interest. Best interest doesn't have to be greedy. I mean, Aquinas would remind us that everybody wants to preserve themselves in being. Um, we, we do, in fact, desire to gain, to become wealthy. And look up and down scripture. That's often a blessing from God. Uh, Job was counted righteous, the most righteous man on earth, and yet he was extraordinarily wealthy. So he presumably didn't steal it. Um, hmm. He wasn't just handed it. Um, well, he wasn't the end, but that doesn't count. <laughs> His flocks and herds were productive, just like uh, our, our patriarch Jacob um, made that productive. He did it through uh, investment, uh, through trade, through things like that. All right. Um, so trade would continue. Expansion of markets would continue. Investment would go like gangbusters. Charity would increase. Consumption as a share of the economy would fall. Advertising would actually be uh, used better. Um, And I would add another huge factor is that friction from legal disputes would decrease. The need to monitor for fraud, for theft, and other pathological activities would end. This would remove a huge cost right now being borne by the market and make it more efficient. So in short, we would get a leaner, meaner market that would continue to expand. The investment would make everybody more productive I'm sorry, you take out greed. If anything, it sounds like capitalism got better because I guarantee you that with that much investment leveraging labor, oh, wow, our growth rate would be spectacular. Look at that. Far from greed propelling capitalism, if we took it out, it'd go faster. It's a break on capitalism. So let's apply our same test to what would happen to socialism right? What would happen to these types of systems? I know I'm lumping them together, but they deserve no better. (laughs) Oh, you guys caught me in a salty mood today. All right, well, let's just look at these. I think people would stop demanding other people's money. What's more greedy than that? And tell me, what would happen to socialism if people no longer demanded that money be taken from others and given to them? What cause in socialism could possibly be supported or sustained? Let me ask you this. If greed stopped, 
and charity flowed forth from the human heart. Don't you think that that would start to to make government redistribution obsolete through private charity? Don't you think that people giving and engaging in private charity instead of forcing other people to pay for their private agenda would um, would start to, to break down uh, that system? It certainly would. What would happen if greed got we got rid of greed. Well, I suspect people would stop wanting to penalize the rich because they have more, though I guess that's technically a species of envy. Nevertheless, I think that um, capitalism would thrive. <laughs> and I think if greed stopped, socialism would be gutted. Um, so tell me, whose system relies on greed again? I think the answer is obvious. Myth number three. Capitalism is expand or die. It can't work without consistently finding new markets and pushing new products. I have one question. Why not? Seriously, why not? People do take this for granted, but it's false. Like, why would that be true? Why can't we have freedom? Free markets. People choosing where to work, when to work, how much to work. What to produce, when to produce, and how much to produce. What to consume, when to consume, where to consume. All these things. Why can't we have that without having to get a new market or create a new product? Like, seriously, why not? I'd love to hear the answer. Um, so let's just play pretend that, um, that this did happen. We, we expanded to every single new market on earth that we, um, we, we stopped producing any new products. I, I guess we produced them all guys. We produced all the products that everybody would want. We expanded every single market on earth. So every desire that people are demanding, well, uh, it's already been satisfied for first, um, Weird indictment of capitalism. So far, this sounds kind of great. <laughs> um, the only result that I could see is that, uh, similar to the last example, consumption would fall and investment would rise because there'd be no desire to, um, to, to consume more because apparently all of the products that were being pushed are no longer being demanded anymore, which implies a reduction of consumption, so that'd be pushed to investment. So our labor would be leveraged with, with more productive assets, meaning we could continue our present amount of demand, which apparently has been satisfied, with less hours of work, therefore preferring leisure time. What's wrong with that? So if we expanded to every market and we pushed every single new product and that was all done, well, then we just reinvest and have more leisure. Great. <laughs> That's fine. I think everybody could deal with a, an extra day on the beach or two. There's nothing wrong with that. And by the way, we don't have to imagine that scenario um, writ large. We could just take a few examples in the market themselves. We have small-scale examples. Uh, take the company IBM. At one point, it was expanding to pretty much every country in the globe. It was constantly putting out new products again and again. Um, there was a time for at least a, like a decade where they were awarded more patents than any other company. Now, today, that's slowed down. Uh, today, they're not expanding to new countries necessarily. Not that I check too much up on IBM. Um, they've pretty much saturated certain markets. For instance, I heard a stat that something like 90% of all credit card processing goes through IBM machines. So you could say they kind of hit the limit of that, right? This is what's called a mature company. It's, it's not a growth company, not really anymore. 
So what's it do? What's it do with the money that it takes in? Well, it just pays a fat five point something percent dividend as of today, because it believes that the best way to give value to shareholders is no longer massive reinvestment, no longer expansion, no longer growth. So it just pays a dividend. So if every company hit that, I would say that they would just all pay a dividend. <laughs> like far from capitalism failing, it's just okay, great. You're asking what would happen if if all companies were mature companies that weren't growing anymore? Then they would just look like the ones that are already like that. Um, capitalism doesn't collapse. The market doesn't stop. Uh, companies in this uh, case typically uh, double down on efficiency, cost savings. Um, ones which are paying these hefty dividends are forced to have very smart fiscal management. Um, great. That's fine. Now, what would happen to the over-leveraged growth companies? Well, if they don't go out of business for some reason, then they would just have a lower valuation, right? Sure. So if there's no place for them to expand, well, that would just be reflected in their present value, right? No problem. So let me give you a doomsday scenario. That was a supposed doomsday scenario for capitalism. And I think we found that it's not a doomsday scenario at all. Um, no problem. Um, but let's give a doomsday scenario kind of on the other side for central planning, for socialism, for redistribution. Um, what would happen if all wealth was equalized? Well, there'd be no more incentive to work, to invest, to take risk. Where does a new wealth come from to fuel the ever more expensive government programs? I would ask how that would be sustainable. What would happen if they achieved an end? I think they would instantly collapse. Now, you may point to the Nordic nations, but we addressed Nordic nations in the last episode, and I would say that they rely on a very strong and relatively free market <clears throat> to make their spending possible. So what happens to, um, what happens to, the, uh, to corruption when the gains from regulatory meddling by shrewd lobbyists exceed the gains from investing in production? That's another question I would ask, because when you have a regulatory state, then lobbying for uh, regulatory rules which drive away competition or benefit your unique uh, company, well, those things can be better than reinvesting in production. The larger the government, the larger the gains are from lobbying them. So if the other side reaches their end with strong top-down regulation covering all sorts of industries, getting into the nitty-gritty of how people do things, pushing people around like, like pieces on a chessboard. Well, you're just going to spiral out of control as that then becomes supported by the companies who see the best way of spending their, their funds on lobbying the government for special privileges instead of actually serving their neighbor. So... In this type of doomsday scenario where the socialists, the planners, uh, they get their way and that gets – it's maxed out. I see a death of innovation, a death of freedom, a death of self-reliance. Um, I mean what would happen if you're training people to take before you make instead of make before you take like capitalism does? Well, I would say that that would very quickly lead to not just societal ruin but a breakdown of the very order that you think is going to create a utopia. Okay, let's do a, let's do a bit of a, a speed summary here, and uh, then I'll clue you in on the next myths coming up.
All right. So our first myth, capitalism is a system. And like any system, we should design it to work for us. We had problems with system, design, and who is us in this example? And I think we, we shredded that one pretty well. Next one. Capitalism is based on greed. Um, yeah, no. So I, we really hit this one hard. I think that, that, that they're thinking, um, I don't know, Augustus Caesar instead of capitalism. <laughs> there is no problem with having a thriving market economy without expansion. None. Um, what is problematic is the long-term sustainability of the alternatives. So, yeah, don't. I, I think that when we're talking about greed, it's not hard to find the greedy ones. If you find people who are committed to a Marxist ideology, that is absolutely centered around greed and envy and ingratitude. Whew! Nothing could be farther from the truth. And there is nothing wrong for uh, wanting the good things of the earth. Uh, there's nothing wrong for providing for your family, for buying shelter, for buying food, to, to improving your lot in life. That's a good thing. It's a blessing from God, and you should respond in gratitude. Um, greed doesn't have to be a part of the story. And the last one is, oh, goodness, what was the last one? These are so terrible. I don't even... Oh, oh, that's right. The Oh, we, di we did cover that one. The expand or die thing, yes. So expand or die is out. Capitalism based on greed, that, that is a silly one. Even if greed's there, I mean, hey, lust is in the marriage market. Doesn't mean that the government should take it over. That's a completely non-sequitur. And then you need to compare it to alternatives. And yeah, the whole capitalism is a system thing. That just mischaracterizes capitalism, which is natural and organic. It implies this arrogant view of the man of system. I think we busted enough. Here's what we're busting. Next time, we have our seventh to bust. Capitalism hurts minorities and women. For instance, the gender pay gap or the racial pay gap. Spoiler alert, um, this is some pretty darn sloppy economics. <laughs> All right, I got to clue you in on one thing for the gender pay gap. This is hilarious. So when this was becoming popular, I went on the Bureau of Labor Statistics and I pulled up the info on um, on wages in the U.S. In the very top lines, I'm trying to recall exactly what it was, but it, it was... Um, Oh, yeah, it, it was, it, they had men and women, and they had the average earnings. Now, oh, little, uh, little so-called economist just took one and divided by the other and went, oh, women only make 77 cents on the dollar. Oh, my goodness, inequality. Guys, I kid you not, the next lines down <laughs> were the average hours worked broken down by men and women. These people didn't even bother to literally look at the next lines down. And if you if you just account for the fact that men on average work more than women on average in the United States labor force, well then the racial pay gap, like like a third of it or half of it or some crazy amount disappears. So I was just blown away with just how sloppy that was, just how disingenuous that was. Um, just because somebody quotes a number doesn't mean they know anything. All right, the next one. Uh, capitalism is wasteful. We're going to be talking about that one. Um, there was a meme going around where they showed a thing of packaged peaches, and it was like uh, grown in South America, packaged in Thailand, and then it was uh, found on U.S. Uh, shelves. So we'll talk about that one a little bit and many more. But yeah, who? Here's uh, three more, and I'll try not to comment on them quite as much. So 
we'll wrap up this episode. Capitalism creates massive boom-bust cycles that have to be regulated by government spending. That's going to be a fun one. Um, Companies should respond to all of their stakeholders, not just care about profit. The triple bottom line. And then capitalism would not give workers a fair wage or good working conditions without the government. All right. Let's wrap it up right there. I know I was a little bit more salty than normal, but I already warned you in the last episode, this topic gets my blood boiling and uh, interfacing with the government. Well, that gets it, um, what's past boiling? What's the sublimating? It just goes right from solid to gas. I don't know what that means, but it means that you're going to have more episodes. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Um, Let's see. If you were one of the ones who have not yet rated and left a review, then uh, what are you waiting for? Um, That would be much appreciated. I always love to see those come in. Uh, You can say anything good, bad, or even in between. Uh, And you can also always email me with uh, questions, suggestions, uh, anything at all, hate mail, um, at thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. I always appreciate hearing from you guys. And, oh, I did want to make an offer, this might be dangerous, to all of you guys listening um, that I've made to a number of you by email. I occasionally will reference different uh, reference works. Uh, Today, I I referenced uh, uh, Taleb and his book, Anti-Fragile. I think that's a must-read. There's a lot of other must-reads by Ed Fazer, Alex Proust, the, the list goes on and on. If there is a book that I reference, I have a standing offer, you can email me. And if, say, you're a student or you're religious or otherwise you just don't feel like you should be wasting your money on books, if I mentioned it, it's probably a book I find important and I will send you a copy for free. So all you have to do is just email me about that, thegordianot101 at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, guys. God bless.